those are uh, other campuses and venues join us for our time in the Word, one of the things that we are super blessed with as a church, and we just experienced it here in the town center, are, are some really gifted and even younger worship leaders, aren't we? I mean, it's just a, a real blessing. You know, honestly, over the, the last few years since we've developed more of a multi-site strategy and, and developed other venues, uh, Troy and I, our regular worship, we're feeling like the, the old guys because we, we've hired uh, young guys like Matthew and Derek over in the venue and uh, Carson just started over at the Cactus Campus and these guys are just really gifted and passionate and they're just hitting it out of the park at the various venues that they're uh, leading in and we have Ken over at the chapel now who does an amazing job of leading in worship there and so I'm just really pleased and I hope you guys encourage uh, your worship leader, not just your, your campus pastor or your regular pastor, though we need it too, but also the, uh, the, the worship leader uh, is really good for you guys to, to encourage them. We are uh, making our way through the Gospel of John, uh, chapters 5 and 6 right now, and if you look on your outline, for those of you that do, you don't have to, but it's a rather large portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. And so I only tell you that because it's going to be um, something where we're not going to read every word of it because it's a, a long sermon of Jesus's and we're going to do a, an overview of it. I'm going to reference key parts of it. But because of that, I would encourage you to read it on your own uh, sometime this week. So after today's message, uh, get alone with God in your quiet time or whatever you do and read John chapter 6 verses 22 to 59 on your own and see what God might say to you. Uh, this is one of Jesus' most famous sermons, maybe next to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, called the Bread of Life Discourse or Sermon. And uh, it, as you're going to see today, it's really uh, appropriate and, and powerful for even us today. Uh, last week, I got some emails from you guys that, that said, boy, you really love the message on fear, and the story I told at the end kind of tugged at your heart, and some of you said it made you cry. And I was kind of smiling at that because I, I, I get that. I mean, it was an emotional thing for me, too, uh, telling you the story of my friend Fred. Um, but I thought, you know, if last week tugged at your heart and made you cry, uh, this week is like the polar opposite. It's going to tug at your mind and make you think. It really is. It's kind of switching gears significantly, but don't blame me. Blame the Son of God, because it's his words that I'm bouncing off of. And uh, you're going to see this is really, really powerful stuff as he teaches us about uh, this idea of naturalism and the supernatural and where you and I uh, need to be today in our lives. So enough said. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, I pray that as we open up your book to the words of your son, Jesus, that God, you would indeed speak to us by the power of your spirit. May we understand rightly what you have said. And Lord, more than anything, not be afraid to apply these things diligently uh, to our lives as we follow you and trust you through it all. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So this is a good way for us to start. I'm going to ask you two questions that I hope you will answer in your mind or maybe in a minute here with a hand raise that, that I think will get us into the topic before us. And the first question is this. Have you ever met a fellow Christian that you feel is too spiritual? 
And by that, I mean somebody that is so heavenly minded that they don't seem very earthly good. A Christian that seems so caught up in all the spiritual stuff that they don't seem to resonate with your earthly plight or with other human beings around them. Raise your hand if you've ever met a Christian like that. Don't be afraid. If it's your spouse, don't do it because they're next to you. But other than that, um, I, I think about a third of us, and, and that's been uh, the case all weekend here. And now let me ask you the converse. Hang on to that one, and let me ask you the opposite question. Have you ever met a fellow Christian that's too worldly? And by that I mean somebody that's so earthly-minded that they aren't any heavenly good. A, a Christian so mired in the here and now that the thing, and the things of this life that they seem spiritually anemic. Raise your hand if you've ever met a Christian like that. Yeah, maybe even a few more. I think that's the point. I'm going to give you my take on this. I have met Christians, I think it's the odd Christian, that seems so spiritually minded that maybe they can't relate to others around them. I, I've met a few Christians like that. Uh, but the reality is, is that for every Christian that I know like that, I, I know 99 that are the opposite. I, I know 99 that I would say are not spiritual enough. I mean, we make fun at times of the rare and odd hyper-spiritual person who always seems to have his or her heads in the head in the clouds. Uh, but the reality is, is that I think sometimes when we make fun of them, God says, you know, I wish you were just a little bit more like them. <laughs> because the reality is, is that the average Christian today, and we just have to own this, in our modern, natural, secular world, tends to struggle more with being too worldly and humanistic in their worldview than they realize. And this hurts us greatly, both as individuals as well as as a church who is supposed to function as the very bride of Jesus Christ. And the passage before us this morning, as we continue through our series called Seeds of Doubt, is all about this subject. This idea that the vast majority of humanity... Even believing humanity is a bit too worldly and materialistic in orientation and not enough spiritual and eternal. And this hurts us, and as we're going to see, it's part of what breeds doubt in our very lives. And there's actually a root cause that Jesus is going to give us for this. I'm going to give it a different name than he does because it's a word we use today. But what Jesus is going to tell us today is that the root cause of this doubt uh, in our lives is naturalism, uh, naturalism. And, and so here's our main point today as we work through the latter half of John 6. Here's what Jesus in a nutshell is going to warn us about, and that is that theistic naturalism is a weak foundation for faith. I have read and reread John chapter 6 over the last two years in preparation for this entire look that we're in right now. And every time I read the portion of scripture before us today, I walk away with this idea that theistic naturalism, I think that's what Jesus is indicting the crowds of, becomes a very weak foundation for faith and that more of us struggle with this than we realize. Now, what is theistic naturalism? In one sense, this word is an oxymoron, or this phrase is an oxymoron, uh, because these two words, when you think about it, are essentially mutually exclusive. Uh, they're opposing terms in and of themselves. Theism, as you guys know, is a belief in God and the supernatural. But naturalism, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a theory denying that an event or object has a supernatural significance. 
So one of them is a belief in God, and the other one is a not belief in God, but only in that which is natural. And so you might be asking, well, what kind of nonsense then is theistic naturalism? But it's actually a phrase that culture watchers and scholars use today to define certain people's worldviews. Uh, the, the very popular Encyclopedia of Sciences and Religion says this about this subject before us today. It says, theistic naturalism is a term used to label an approach to divine action, now watch this, in which theistic belief is upheld, but descriptions of events that invoke divine interference with the world are rejected. Historically, theistic naturalism is associated primarily with the deism of the 18th century in which God was seen as little more than the world's designer and both miracles and the eff efficacy of intercessory prayer were denied. So do you get what they're suggesting here? And there are people out there today that want to retain a theistic belief in God as creator and Jesus as a great teacher but not allow this belief to interfere with everyday life and not allow this belief to cause them to see reality as a whole through supernatural lens, but only in a natural light. And so these people love the parts of the Bible that talk about God as a creator who is out there kind of watching over the whole thing, but they don't like the parts of the Bible that talk about God as intervening in this world through miracles and revelation and answered prayer and things like that, what we call God's imminence or closeness. In a sense, theistic naturalism in our highly modern scientific world wants to have its cake and eat it too. They want to have a belief in God and even Jesus, but they also want to have a fully natural, materialistic worldview in which their spirituality doesn't get in the way of their everyday life. And though you might not confront this on a daily basis, though I'm going to show you that you're more like this than you think, I confront this all the time, especially in my study. If I'm ever studying scholarly stuff about uh, the Bible, um, I confront this all over the place in our world today. Uh, last week, I, uh, I did a message. It's okay if you weren't here. The simple part of the message was we talked about Jesus' miracle of walking on water. And we were talking about fear and how the disciples were all freaked out and afraid when Jesus did the miracle of walking on the water. In my study for that message, and I didn't share this with you last week because it's more appropriate this week, I actually came across an article that came out six or nine years ago in a scientific publication that I'll bet you you've never read. It was the Journal of Paleolimnology. Who here subscribes to the Journal of Paleolimnology? Probably not too many of you. Bet you don't even know what that is. I didn't. Limnology is the study of lakes. Paleolimnology is the archaeological study of lakes. And this article that appeared in the scholarly journal was literally entitled, or is titled, Is There a Paleolimnological Explanation for Walking on Water in the Sea of Galilee? So they were trying to figure out historically when Jesus claimed, when it was claimed that Jesus walked on water, could there be a natural explanation for that? And what this article goes on to talk about is that about once every 1,000 years with the weather patterns that come off the Mediterranean Sea onto the Sea of Galilee, it does indeed create these small little icebergs. Do you see where they're going with this? 
And that possibly when Jesus walked on water, it was one of those once every 1,000 year weather patterns. And Jesus was actually walking across icebergs on the Sea of Galilee in order to get to the boat. And that he saw that, they saw that as a miracle, but he was really walking on icebergs. The guy that was pointing this article out in another article that I was reading said he didn't know which would be a better miracle. Uh, Jesus actually walking on water or timing it so perfect that a once in a one every 1,000 year event happened that night and Jesus balanced so perfectly that he fooled them into thinking he was walking on water. But you see, that's the world we live in. The world that we live in today wants to have a natural, rational explanation to everything. It's part of what has created our modern day world. And the reality is, is that you and I are imbued with that all over the place. And the theism that we have, even the Christology that we have, the study of Christ, has now an overemphasis of the physical and the natural all over it. And the point is, is that I don't think it's just ivory hall academicians that struggle with this today. I see church people, you and me, struggling with this as well. And we're going to look at how right now. Now, we're going to do two things. We're going to let Jesus teach us right now through John chapter 6, because he's going to indict the crowd back then on being a bunch of theistic naturalists. And then we're going to wrap this up in a few minutes with me sharing you another story it's not like a tearjerker story. It's, a, it's more of a thinking story uh, of what the Lord did over the summer in me uh, in some of the areas of my soul. So first, let's look at John 6. And what Jesus is going to show us here is that as human beings, we are prone to be theistic naturalists on two levels. So for those of you who take notes, write it down now because this isn't going to appear again. And that is that Jesus is going to show us that we are theistic naturalists in how we see life and even in how we see God and him. And that one of the biggest things that keeps people from really following Jesus is that we are way too natural in our outlook. So first, let's notice what Jesus says about how we see all of life. The context of John chapter 6, you might remember, is that Jesus has just completed one of his greatest miracles the day before in the feeding of the 5,000. Thousands of people were fed through the supernatural multiplying of five small loaves, two small fish, and it's the fourth miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. And after that miracle is done, Jesus and his band of 12 have hightailed it back to Capernaum, where they were from, and now the crowds and the Jewish religious leaders are pursuing Jesus because they're enamored with him, so they go to Capernaum as well. And when they find him there, look at what happens in verse 25. Let's pick up the story. It says, when they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, they want to know, how did you slip away from us on the other side of the sea? We saw the disciples get into the boat. You didn't get into the boat. And so they're wondering, how did you get here? They didn't know about the miracle of walking on water or floating on icebergs, however you see it. They, they, they didn't know about that miracle. And so they're saying to him, when did you get here? Tell us how you got here. And I love Jesus' style, guys, because he hardly ever answers a question directly. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, he's God. He's got a different agenda. So look at what he does in verses 26 and 27. It says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs or miracles, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. I love how one commentator just cuts right to the quick, and he says, and I quote, these people were crass materialists. (laughs) Or, Or as one other commentator notes, he says, instead of seeing in the bread the miracle, they had seen in the miracle only the bread. Do you understand what's happening here? Jesus had fed these people the day before. He had given them their their happy meal, and now they were all happy because they had been fed, and they're coming to him for more food. Instead of saying, who in the world could turn five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 10,000, and what does that mean about this guy? They simply wanted Jesus to do it again. They wanted him to meet their physical needs. And Jesus is calling them on this. And you got to love the thickness of well-seasoned church people because they're going to go on here to respond to Jesus by totally ignoring his words here about eternal life, totally ignoring about food that will never never perish, all the spiritual stuff. And they're only going to focus on one little word that Jesus used here, and it's the word labor or work. And they're going to like, blow that word up, and they say this. Well, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works or labor of God? So they're focusing totally on the labor part of Jesus' words, but Jesus is going to go with it. In verse 9, he says, well, the work I want you to do is to believe in God and myself. Spiritually place your faith in him and in me. But they go right back to the physical again. Look at verses 30 and 31. They say, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. (laughs) In other words, don't miss this, guys. They're still looking for their monthly food stamps. I mean, they still want Jesus to meet their physical needs. And in a sense, this is their argument. Well, hey, big whip, you did a one-off the other day by feeding us. But you know what? Our fathers got bread every day from God. And so why don't you give us that? They're totally mired in the here and now. And so once again, Jesus is going to try to get them off the physical and the material. And he responds this way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, Jesus is now referring to himself, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's saying, get your eyes off this physical bread. That physical bread was only meant to point you to me, the bread of life. The bread from heaven that has come to meet your spiritual needs. But again, they don't get it. In verse 34, they're going to say, well, sir, give us this bread always. And they mean the physical bread. And Jesus, finally having had enough, goes right for the jugular. And he just wraps up this whole section in five verses by saying this. Look, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me comes to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up, meaning raise you up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see what he's doing here, guys? He's pleading with them to understand the spiritual nature of life, that God is real, that Jesus came from heaven as God. He's already made that one clear. And that he came to quench our spiritual thirst and satisfy our spiritual hunger. And he's telling them that God is constantly interacting with this world, even mysteriously calling those that he wants to to himself, in which theologians have been wrestling for years on what exactly that means. But don't miss, the crowds are missing all of this. Like so many today, they simply wanted to use Jesus to meet their comfort-laden, materialistic, even hedonistic desires. They wanted a Jesus that they could fit into their everyday physical world, not a Jesus who was inviting them into his spiritual world. And in a very real way, this is why I used the phrase I did earlier, they meet the definition of what we today call theistic humanists. <laughs> they want Jesus, but they want him on their terms to fit him into their world the way that they want to. And when Jesus starts talking about radical faith and ruthless trust and abandoning yourself to him and his cause, they don't want that because they're naturalists. And they couldn't see beyond the physical bread and what this is going to do is cause them to eventually walk away. We're going to look at this as we wrap this series up next week, but it's the saddest scripture in all of John. It's John 6, verse 66. By the way, don't read into that. I know somebody can email me and say 666. That has nothing to do with it. So it's just chapter 6, verse 66. These were added like a 1,000 years after the Bible was written. So uh, it ends by saying, after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back, and isn't this sad, no longer walked with him. That's what we've been saying in this whole series, is that if you don't understand the nature of legalism, confusion, ignorance, fear, and today naturalism, they run the potential of eventually getting the better of you, <laughs> as they did in Jesus' day. And it caused people to cave in with their doubt. And naturalism becomes a seedbed here for doubt. And then we don't have time to look at this, but to add insult to injury... This whole pattern now in verses 41 to 51 is going to occur again. But this time not in life, this time in how they actually saw Jesus and God. And, and, and so uh, the, the Jewish leaders now begin grumbling because Jesus says he came down from heaven, insinuating that he came from the Godhead itself. And so it says in verse 42, look at this is interesting, look at what they respond to with that. It says they, the Jewish religious leaders, said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So, so again, just, just simply notice one thing here. They're stuck in the natural. They're stuck in the human. I, and they refuse to see Jesus in the spiritual light that he postures himself within. They already know the story of the virgin birth. They already know, because it's all over Palestine, the story that there was this young girl named Mary, and Joseph uh, had not impregnated her, and they claimed that the Holy Spirit did. So Joseph was a dad, just not a biological dad, that Jesus was unique, come down from heaven. And so even when he claimed that, they couldn't hear it. Why? Because they were mired once again in the physical. They had no spiritual sense in a great part because they couldn't get their eyes off the here and now. 
And so the point of all of this is clear. I hope it's not bypassing you. And that is that in how you and I see life and in how you and I see God, we need to always be careful to remember that life is a wonderful mixture of the physical and the spiritual. That life involves the seen as well as the unseen. And they are more in play than, and it's more in play than we realize. And when you start to own that and see that, and I think some of you have gotten that far, what you also need to then see is that it doesn't take any faith to believe in a physical world, right? I mean, big whip. You believe in a material world and, and, and money and 401ks and, and, and cars and all the material things we have. It doesn't take any faith to believe in that. No, what takes faith is to believe in this unseen world that Jesus talks about, like God's existence, the nature and role of Jesus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the nature of God's revelation to us in the Bible, all the promises contained in here, as well as all of the truth, even such things as prayer and God's willingness to answer prayer. Those are the things that take faith. Those are the things that separate the men from the boys, the women from the gals. That's where the rubber meets the road for you and me. Paul the Apostle believed this so strongly that in Ephesians 6, verse 12, he pleads with his audience this way. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. No, we have a spiritual battle fought on spiritual ground with spiritual weapons. And anybody that's going to engage God has to understand that. But here's the problem, guys. We have too many Christians today that have become imbued with the naturalism of our world, and we go to church on Sunday, tell me if this isn't true, and we do our spiritual thing, inviting Jesus into our lives for this moment. But then Monday through Saturday, we go out and we view most of reality through a material and physical lens, and we only throw theism and Jesus into it when we want or need him. <laughs> And so I'm going to throw a new phrase at you. Now we've become Christian theistic naturalists. And I think there's a lot of them floating around in culture today that invite Jesus into our world when we need him and say, okay, break in. But then as soon as that's over, we just want to go back to living life as we want to in our natural materialistic way. And I'm telling you, when we do that, we are no different from the crowds. This discourse from John 6 is applied right to us. That's what Jesus is telling us. Uh, one of the reasons I believe that this is so um, common today, even among church people or you and I, is because uh, in my understanding of the world that we live in now, our very secular culture, um, what most people point out, experts on this subject, is that we now fully live in a post-Christian secular culture here in the Western world, if the Supreme Court's decision in June didn't convince you of that, I don't know what will. But we live in a very different world than it was 50 years ago. And what some argue is that in the first time in 2,000 years since the founding of Christianity in the western part of the world here, we now live in a totally secular kind of culture. That we are more open to secularism and naturalism than any other time in the history uh, of, again, 2,000 years at least of Christendom. And, and, and though some of you don't believe it, I want to try to convince you of that now by spending the few moments that I have remaining telling you a story that's kind of a geeky story. I'll just prepare you, and then I'm going to give you a short book review. And you're saying, that sounds really boring, but I don't think it will be. I think you're going to find this actually uh, rather scintillating if you're willing to think with me. Now, so let's begin with the story. 
About a year ago, I was sitting in my office. My secretary always keeps Christianity Today magazine away from me because I'm such a geek that when I get it, I just devour it, and, and they lose me for about an hour. So after we had met with Neil and Brian and Kathy and myself, she gave me my Christianity Today uh, copy. I'm like a kid in a candy shop, and so I spent an hour reading uh, that magazine. And uh, it actually was a great one that, that, that month because it gave the annual book awards that had come out for that year of the best Christian books written that year. And one of them that caught my eye was a book written by James K.A. Smith, who is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College in Grand Rapids. And the book was called How Not to Be Secular. I thought, boy, that, that's a topic that interests me because we live in a very secular age in which we're you know, constantly getting bombarded uh, with messages that are very different from our Christian faith, and so I ordered the book. And here's where the story gets kind of thick, is that when I got the book, I noticed that it had a subtitle on it that I didn't see before. It, it said, How Not to Be Secular, Reading Charles Taylor. And, and then it had a picture of an old guy that I assumed is Charles Taylor on the cover. And I thought, well, what's that about? So I flipped the book over, and it's endorsed by Tim Keller, who I really like. And Keller says this about this book. He says, Charles Taylor's crucial book on our secular age is inaccessible for most people, including church leaders who desperately need to learn from his insight. Jamie Smith's book is the solution to this problem. And I realized I was holding a book that was about a book. It was a book written to help idiots like me who can't read the original book. And, and honestly, I was offended. I thought, if those aren't fighting words, I don't know what is. I thought, I don't need a book to understand a book. Who do they think I am? So honestly, I haven't read it. I put it down. <laughs> Turn it over. I put it down. And I'll read it someday. But a year ago, I ordered Charles Taylor's book. And I said, who do they think I am that I can't read this book? And, 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 and it scared me because I got it in the mail, and it's like really thick. It's 877 pages long, and it has no pictures. It's just really small print. <laughs> and I started perusing this, and I thought, oh, boy, have I gotten myself in trouble. I, I, I mean, anywhere you open this book, and I'm about halfway through, but like anywhere you open it, it's like you read and go, what? Like I just opened it right here. I just did this by chance. Uh, page 573. But the new ways in which we experience our world and the human condition, for instance, as autonomous subjects, as beings who can revel in choice, as citizens, among others, in a sovereign people, as potentially in control of history, all these and others are only comprehensible if we see them in the context of the great cultural... What is he talking about? I mean, <laughs> honestly, I, I read this book and it's like... So here's the deal. Honestly, I've been reading it for a year, a year, and I'm only halfway through. And, and it's because I read a page, and I, I'm about ready to say, okay, what does he say about this book, you know? Because <laughs> it's, it's hard. I mean, th this guy, Charles Taylor, saying, who is he? He is a, 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 a professor emeritus of philosophy at McGill University up in Montreal, Canada. And, and he's a Catholic, and, and he's desperately trying to defend the history of Christianity, its influence in today's world. And what the book is really about, and this is where now we'll get a little bit serious, is, is he's trying to trace, and this is why it's daunting, um, Christianity from 500 AD at the beginning of what we call the Middle Ages, all the way up to our modern world. And he's trying to help us understand how did it get so crazy? How in the world could you have this strong Christendom 
that leads up through the Reformation and, and even times of two or 300 years ago, and now this secular world that we live in. And he's trying to connect the dots. And, and I'm going to share with you what I've learned so far from this book because it was meaningful to me. You'll hear why in a minute on my summer study uh, this past summer. Uh, but I do want to just give one caveat real quick, and that's that I don't pretend to understand Charles Taylor. So don't email him and tell him your pastor understands him. I don't. I'm just going to share with you what I, I think I've gleaned from this book because there's some richness that, that, that he shares here that has helped me understand, and it ties into what Jesus is saying here. He begins with a discussion on the Middle Ages. And he notes in the Middle Ages, think 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., that during the Middle Ages, it was an enchanted world in which most people had a porous self. These are his phrases. And they existed under higher time. What's he mean by that? An enchanted world, he simply means that the natural and the supernatural were constantly in play. It was an uneducated world. It was a pre-scientific world. In many ways, rather superstitious. Uh, uh, the origin of the phrase, God bless you when you sneeze, is because they thought a demon was being expelled from you. And so, you know, God bless you on that one. But, but, but it was also a world in, in which people were very open to God's influence upon society and the nature of culture and the world, the everyday world we lived in. And they were constantly moving in and out of the natural and the supernatural. And so Charles Taylor is calling that an enchanted world in which the barrier between the two was not there. And as a result of that, he argues that people back then had a rather porous self, porous in the sense of permeable, uh, things flowing in and out of it. It was more transparent. And he argues that people back then would flow in and out of the natural and the supernatural in their worldview and their understanding of the world in a way that maybe God intended. And then he points out, if you don't grab all of that, that, that they existed under higher time. If a higher time, he means their view of time was not just in the here and now. Their view of time was not just linear and what's right in front of you. They, they, they counted all of God's history in the Bible and all of that in their view of time. So an example he gives is that on Good Friday in the Middle Ages, when they celebrated Good Friday, in their minds they were deeply linking it, as some of us do today, to the original Good Friday, the crucifixion. And they were almost seeing it as one. Kind of like watching two mountain peaks where you see one here and one right behind it, but you don't see the gap in between it. He says their view of time because of God's movement in salvation history was pretty linked. It was higher time. It was from God's perspective. And then he points out that our modern world is the opposite. That we live now in a disenchanted world complete with a buffered self that functions under worldly time. And, and I don't think there's any argument on that one. He points out that the world we live in now, though it's not void of the supernatural, he points out that there is a big gap between the natural and the supernatural. That the vast majority of people in Canada and the United States function under a materialistic, humanistic, natural perspective. And then there's a few wackos like us that believe in the supernatural. They gather on Sunday for church, and we try to integrate the two. But as you're going to see, our struggle is, is because we live in a world that has made a big barrier between the two, that it really has created a disenchanted world in our everyday living. And then he points out that this has resulted in a buffered self. Just picture a self that's not porous and open like this, but one that is sheltered off. It's buffered against all the spiritual realities that might be in play. Nobody has any idea that there might be angels and demons and that God is doing this and God is doing that. They're buffered in our natural world from all of that. And as a result of that, they function under worldly time. There's no such thing as God's time. <laughs> 
There's only one perspective of time in our 21st century world, and that's here and now and maybe a little bit of history, but what else could time be? It's our time. It's worldly time. And he points out that there's been a drastic change just in the last 500 years as to how people see reality in the western half of the world. And it's what you and I feel every day. It's the water that we swim in Monday through Saturday. And then he asks a $10 question, and that is, well, how did it get this way? And it's here where he just writes in a laborious fashion. He, he calls it a, a very long, zigzag, slow road to secularism. But he points out that there are three things that happened through four movements over the last 500 years. And those three things we're going to call rationality, righteousness, and ritual. Forget about that for a second. He, he points out that during the European Renaissance... And then through the Reformation, the great Protestant Reformation, and then through the Jesuit Counter-Reformation, and then through the Enlightenment, the whole European Enlightenment, that there was a theme through all of that in which culture in the civilized world elevated three things. And those three things were rationality or reason, righteousness or morality, and ritual or discipline. Now, now listen very close, because these are all good things, and he's not denying that. He's simply saying that when you look very close at those four movements, and the Reformation is something we as Christians study all the time, and then the Enlightenment, he says that you will notice that they strongly relied on rationality and reason, righteousness and morality, ritual and discipline. So think about it. I mean, education today in our modern world is very important, isn't it? But where did that come from? That came from the enlightenment. That came from civilization in which we said, you need to rule the world with your mind. You need to be thinking people. You need to, to be rational in all that you do. And even much of the Reformation, though it was arguing from a biblical perspective, was doing so from a very rational perspective, very educated people using their minds. It's a good thing, but you'll see why it can be dangerous here in a minute. And then he argues that all of civilization basically is a sense of heightened morality. And though some of you say, well, that's not true. We got MTV and Howard Stern and VH1 and all that crud going on today. Well, think about the whole civilized world in general. I mean, when we created first world cultures, we created fair economies. We created good democratic political structures. All of those were dependent upon what we call natural law. This, this the sense that we can discover a morality and a righteousness that we can all agree upon. And then he points out that the Western world is also built upon ritual and discipline, this idea of the Protestant work ethic and, and the Industrial Revolution, and there's no such thing as laziness, and you need to make something of yourself. And, and when you think about it, he's right. We have elevated these things very, very high in, over the last 500 years. And again, they aren't bad things. But here's what nobody saw coming. Here's the unintended consequence that he says created our secular world. Now, now listen closely. And that's what he said. Originally, we tied all these things to God. I mean, 500 years ago, when we were doing this, even through the early stages of the Enlightenment, we said, well, God has given us a rational mind. Let's use it. God is a God of righteousness and morality. Let's live it. God is a God of ritual and discipline. Let's apply it. And he says it served us well in creating our modern world. He said what nobody saw coming is that eventually, about one or 200 years ago, people were going to say, I can have this stuff without God. Nobody saw that coming. They hijacked it. <laughs> they said, I can be rational and get an education without God. I can think. I can study. I can grow. I can learn. I don't need God for that. 
And I can live in the civilized world and obey the rules of my HOA and not kill somebody with a gun and function in the society without God. And I can have discipline and apply myself and pull myself up on my own bootstraps and make something of myself and be successful without God. And though that was never the intention at all, I mean, many of the reformers and the counter-reformers, they never meant for it to be like that in elevating those things so high and making those the standard of how we created and engaged culture, what Charles Taylor is pointing out is that they just took God out of it and said, we're just fine, thank you. And that's the world that we're left with, isn't it? And he's not saying that everybody's an atheist today. He said there's plenty of people who still tie God to these things, you and I. It's just that it's possible to take God out of it. So for the first time in 2,000 years of history, it's legitimate to be a humanist. It's legitimate to be a naturalist. Because we set the table in such a way that said what really matters is that you're rational, righteous, and that you're disciplined. And our world looks at us and says, hey, I can do that one without God, even though you do it with God. Do you see what he's arguing here? So then the question becomes, well, what do we do with that? And I haven't finished the book yet, and I don't know if I will. This one's looking more attractive all along. But, <laughs> but he does suggest, and this is where God hit me this summer. He does suggest in the early stages of this book that there are three things, and he's not saying get rid of this. Don't hear him saying that. I mean, he's, he's a philosopher. He believes in this stuff. He's saying that Christianity, however, has always dug deeper and been about these three things. That Christianity is about agape, grace and mystery what does he mean agape that's the greek word for love jesus said the first greatest commandment the first great commandment is to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength the second one is like it love your neighbor as yourself jesus said a new commandment i give you to love one another paul the apostle said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself for love through love and what charles taylor is saying is that as the church gets back to emphasizing more than anything else the agape love of God and the agape love for each one of us. Now, now watch this. He says they can't do that one without God. You can't love unconditionally in the way Jesus calls you to without God. You can think rationally without God. You can't love like that without God. They can't hijack that one. And then he points to grace. And grace is the unmerited favor of God. Simply put, grace is the fact that God has forgiven you when you were least forgivable. <laughs> That's what we're going to celebrate in communion here in a minute. Uh, grace is that radical forgiveness of God that we're now to, supposed to apply in our daily lives. And again, what Charles Taylor says is you can't do that without God. You can't forgive people of grievous sins against you without God. And God is the basis of grace that we show to each other and the grace we receive from him they can't hijack that one and then he points to mystery and i know that word bothers some of you by mystery he doesn't mean uh you know chalking everything up to the unknown he, he's simply saying that the bible affirms that his way are high, his ways are higher than our ways and, and that there's plenty of mystery as daryl used to say our puny minds can never understand the mind of god <laughs> And that part of our, 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 our Christian faith is living under this banner of mystery in which, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, now we know in part, then we shall see face to face. And he says again, they can't take that one from us. 
And so he's saying, don't, he's not saying don't be rational, don't be righteous, and don't have discipline. Keep all that stuff. But go deeper and make this the core of your faith. And some of you are saying, but yeah, Jamie, don't you do that? Well, <laughs> this is where God convicted me this summer. Because I'm reading all this stuff and I'm, I'm starting to understand it. And, you know, I get like you guys. I'm thinking, yeah, boy, our world better understand that. They need agape and grace and mystery and da-da-da-da. And then the Lord basically said to my spirit, and so do you. And I was like, what do you mean, Lord? And I'm meditating there. And the Lord really spoke to my spirit and said, you know, you're running a large church. And the way that you run it is through a lot of rationality and reason and through a lot of discipline. And uh, through a lot of righteousness. And boy, I felt so convicted. Because it's right. I mean, I'm called on every day to make big decisions. And I'm called to go to board meetings and have good answers. And I'm called to make sure we maintain a standard of righteousness. And, and, and no one's ever accused me of being lazy and highly disciplined lifestyle. And I study hard for my sermons. And I make sure I have an answer and all this stuff. And God said, continue to do all those things. But don't be known for that. <laughs> Don't be known for being this CEO who can lead a large church. Be known, Jamie, for being a man of agape and a man of grace and a man of rich mystery who understands the things of God so that when people are with you, they say, gosh, I felt like I was, a, I was in the presence of maybe even Jesus. Not that I am Jesus, but Jesus-like in the way that you love people and in the way you show grace. And I got to tell you, it's a humbling moment or God said, make your life about agape, grace, and mystery while keeping those other things. Because if you give your church and the secular world that, they can't separate God from that. Because you only can get that from Jesus. And again, I don't mean to be insulting to you guys, but then when I come back from my break and I think about you and I think, gosh, if I struggle with this, you guys are goners. And the reason is simple, by the way. It's not because I'm more godly than you. Here's the reason why. I'm more sheltered than you. See, you're on the front lines. You're the ones that have to be in this secular world Monday through Saturday. I'll wake up Monday and start studying the Bible again. <laughs> I'll go Tuesday and I'll show up here to church and I'll have eight meetings with a bunch of Christians. And then Wednesday, I might be out in the community having lunch with somebody, but again, it'll be a Christian. And so I'm pretty sheltered from this stuff. You're not. And so all I know is that if it's a struggle for me to swim in this dirty water, then it has to be a struggle for you. And if I've elevated righteousness and rationality and ritual to a level that God says get down to the deeper stuff, then maybe you do need to as well. And so that's what challenge I want to leave with you, is that if we're going to avoid being Christian theistic naturalists, <laughs> our answer is going to be found in agape, grace, and mystery. And continuing to live in that realm every day of the week with the Lord. So here's what we're going to do as we wrap up, and we're going to hand it off to our campuses and venues here in just a second. Uh, we're going to enter into a time of communion of the Lord's Supper. And i got to tell you, if there's ever an appropriate time to do so, it's now. Because we're going to hand out to you a little piece of bread and some juice that were very similar to Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his death, uh, crucifixion, and resurrection. And as you know, the bread and the juice symbolize his body and his blood, which were given for us. Here's what I want you to do, though, today. As you receive these elements in just a minute here, in venues and campuses as well, I would like you to receive these as symbols of agape, grace, and mystery. Receive them as symbols of his absolute love for you, 
so strong that he calls it unconditional, so strong that he says that if you believe in him, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's agape love. And then receive these as symbols of grace, the fact that he has looked at all of your sin, past, present, and future, and said, I've died on a cross for those sins. And I give you grace, unmerited and unlimited. See these symbols as that. And then see them as mysteries. And somebody came up to me last night and said, well, how's that a mystery? And I said, well, the mystery is, why would God do that for you? As Paul the Apostle says, it's immeasurably beyond all that we could ever expect or imagine. The fact that he left the Trinity, Jesus did. He left his satisfaction with God for all of eternity, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, came to this earth to die for you. There's a great mystery in that, but it's a glorious one. He loves you. And let's hold these elements, let's worship in that light. And then after we're done worshiping, I will lead you here, and then our pastors will lead in the venues and the, um, and, and, and the other campuses. So let me pray for us, and then we'll hand out the elements. Father, I thank you for the rich teaching of the Lord Jesus today, that he is the bread of life. We're about ready to hand out some bread. And God, I pray we would not be confused as the original crowds were, that this is just a physical meal in which Jesus is trying to nourish us on a physical level. God, no silliness like that. But that God, we would see these elements as they are intended, and that is a, a spiritual significance of the body and the blood of Jesus that has been given for us so that we might be invited into the spiritual realm to live life now in a supernatural way. God, may this be what that's about. Meet us in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name.